Welcome to the second podcast of conversations with and about an Adolf perspective. Adolf's American Descendant of Slavery. Conversations with and about an Adolf perspective seeks to have conversations with the greatest generation, baby boomers, Generation X and Z, and of course, millennials. Today's guest is another one of my neighbors, a baby boomer that I have known for the last 18 years. And entrepreneur extraordinaire this podcast is a continuation on the question are black men the problem in the black community and to black women with no turn on the tv shows in any city on any given night of week and you will find there are numerous images of black men the representations of black men typically fall into three categories athletes entertainers and criminals what About Me is the first of its kind documentary, taking viewers into the hearts and minds of African American men. These men, like generations before them, are the foundation of communities that have not been seen on television, yet have existed across the country for generations. They built careers, headed families, owned homes, and led productive lives, but somehow, mass media missed their stories. The compelling voices featured in What About Me cross a wide spectrum of achievers, such as attorneys fighting for civil and social justice, entertainers creating diverse media content, entrepreneurs challenging the status quo, and young teens finding their way through today's society. Please join us as we explore this remarkable celebration and momentous journey. Every day, God is born and finds himself in human form. He denies himself to find true wealth within. In his tribe, his help is prized possession. Sin is diverting from the rugged path that leads to the truth that he is I and I am we. songs in the key of life, and love is in need of more, young nigga from Inglewood, barefoot on the cedar floor, if black music is the blood, then my heart has been beating more, rapidly, happily, I look back on a Phoenix Shakur, her son paved the way, now all eyes on me, cause I'm young, black, and gifted, Nina, all eyes gon' see, if you swung back when faced with a challenge, that's meant to break you, and balance scales, you ain't average, now throw your hands on three, gon' put them up, black magic, black excellence, Black habits, it's black medicine. Everything black, church, black church, everything. Everything black, love, black love, everything. Praise black Jesus, play black Moses. Give them flowers while they still give black roses. Everything black, church, black pride, everything. Everything black, pride, black lives, everything. Skin noir, dress noir, here you are. The first intro comes from D. John Jackson, who is the founder and owner and principal of 5J Entertainment, which will be releasing this, doc, this documentary entitled What About Me? Mr. Jackson is the co-creator and executive producer of What About Me? 
The second intro was D Smoke and Jackie Couchet with Black Habits. All right, okay. With me today, I have one of my neighbors, uh, another another one of my neighbors uh, for the past 18 years. Uh, let's call him Mr. G on uh, Elias because some of the things that we might talk about might get us counseled. So uh, I'm your host, Mr. Black, or Black Not Blackish, and you can call me Mr. Black. And this conversation we're getting ready to have is about uh, black men. Uh, black men, are black men a problem? Question mark. Are we a problem to black women? And are we a problem to the greater black community? Uh, so, but first, being this is a conversations uh, uh, with and about with my neighbor today of 18 years, and it's going to be about uh, black men and, and are we the problem? Uh, Mr. G, the first question I have for you is uh, American descendants of slavery is uh, who are your people? Where are you from? Who are your mom and daddy? My, uh, my parents are uh, uh, descendants uh, uh, of Indians, actually. Wow. Uh, Seminole Indians. And uh, uh, born and raised in Sanford, Florida, made uh, famous by Trayvon Martin. And uh, they migrated from down in, uh, in Sanford, racist Sanford, Florida. Uh, in uh, 1952, made a brief stop in Trenton, New Jersey, and then continued on to Brooklyn, New York, where we were born and raised and educated. What, Mr. G, I did not know you were Seminole. You know, I hear a lot of talk about we that that American descendants of slavery, so-called uh, indigenous to the United States of America. And you and I look alike, and I'm thinking that m maybe that I'm indigenous to this country, and I'm not necessarily of slave descent. But that's another question. That's another question for another day. Uh, can, can you tell me something about your father? Yes, yes, yes. Father, uh, uh, excellent businessman, extraordinaire. Uh, his father was a businessman down in British Sanford, Florida in the 30s, 40s, and 50s. Uh, I think it'd be appropriate to start with my grandfather, Arthur Duhart. He owned a couple of uh, golf gas stations in the 30s and 40s in Sanford, Florida that had grocery stores attached to them. Uh, he was also involved in the sharecropping uh, business uh, where he did what is known uh, during that time as running crews. And he had 30 or 40 people that uh, uh, daily he would make sure showed up uh, on the farms, you know, to pick the uh, vegetables and the fruits. And uh, Sanford was known during that time uh, as the celery capital of uh, the United States. They called it the celery city. And um, the uh, farm owner, the old plantation owner, would pay my grandfather. And he would pay all the staff, make sure that everybody uh, got their work done, everybody was there, put in their time, so on and so forth. And uh, uh, in his spare time, he was learned how to make almond uh, in the 30s and 40s. And uh, uh, from my understanding from my dad, he was an excellent golfer. 
moved on to my father. My grandfather taught my father everything he knew about business. Uh, my father never graduated from high school. Uh, he and my mom, she didn't graduate from high school. Uh, they had my oldest brother in 1950. And uh, they did uh, what the honorable people did uh, when uh, I got pregnant. They got married. And uh, in 1952, they migrated north to where the jobs were. Um, and think that there was a future for them in Sanford, uh, particularly for their kids. And so my father uh, got up to Brooklyn and worked for several people, uh, doing all kinds of jobs, parking cars and working in different grocery stores. And um, of course, he had uh, a strong background in the produce business. And, um, and I would say in the late 50s, he opened up his first produce store uh, in Brooklyn. Then he opened another. restaurants, supermarkets, and, uh, you know, and so that, uh, that was the family business. All of us worked in the family business. All of us were trained by my father in business, which was a blessing before we all went off to college and learned the textbook version, you know, which we all know means nothing uh, unless you can apply it. So, yeah, that, that's, that's how it all started. Wow, man. So, your folks left Sanford, Florida in 1952. And, yes, sir. And they did, did they take the train? I'm just curious. Or did they drove, drive up? Or? They drove. They drove. And, um, and I, in the 50s, traveling from Florida to New York, I know that was, you know, safety was of the utmost importance because you never know who you run into. But that's, that's right. You know, they uh, got what is famously known, and there was a movie made about it called The Green Book. Right, right. Which, yeah, which shared with people traveling, particularly south and north, uh, where you could buy gas, where you could eat, where you could stop and go to the bathroom. You know, what hotels uh, or motels you were welcome in. So, you know, they traveled uh, along uh, the route, which was actually was 301, because 95 at that time wasn't even built. And so people that came from the South, uh, uh, particularly uh, going toward the New York, New Jersey area, actually took 301 uh, oh, oh. to Route 1. Oh, wow. I didn't realize that. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. can you tell me about your mom? Please. Your, your mother. Can you tell me about your mother? Sure, sure. Uh, my mother was born into a family of 14 children in Sanford. Uh, and uh, 12 there. And uh, my uh, uh, my grandmother uh, worked um, in, you know, uh, in kitchens and, you know, and uh, as, as a maid for 
of different people around town. And um, all 12 of those children, same mother and father, uh, all were educated. Uh, they all uh, finished school. My mother was to New York. She finished school. Most of them went on to college and got master's degrees and uh, PhDs. Uh, my grandfather on my mother's side was uh, was a very staunch uh, man for education. He was not educated, and um, he had to leave school to work to help support the family. So uh, he made sure that his children uh, would get educated, and uh, that uh, state of mind was passed on to all of us, which uh, you know, which meant for us that you know, getting uh, educated, you know, was the bottom line. There wasn't another uh, option. And so that's the way my parents laid it down. So that's the way every rolled, which turned out to be a benefit for everybody. And uh, my mother got to New York. She went back to school. Um, she got a high school diploma. She went on to college. She went to computer school. Uh, and she uh, got a job with the New York State uh, Department of Probation, where she worked for 35 years. Um, and. Um, uh, the Department of Probation uh, for about 12 years. She worked in um, Tower 2 of the World Trade Center on the 68th floor. On, on the, and, uh, you, uh, said, you said the six, 68th floor? 68th floor. 68. 68. Wow. 68. And um, she retired in 90. So, of course, it was before, you know, the towers, uh, uh, the planes ran into the towers. But that was really near and dear to our hearts because uh, I would go up. I was a messenger on Wall Street all through high school. And so I would stop by on my route and go up and just hang out with her and see how she's doing and, you know, and just check in on her and things of that nature while I was down on Wall Street. And so when those towers got bombed and, you know, the planes ran into them, you know, uh, it was a very, very tragic day for us because, uh, thank God, my mother never was not there. She had retired back to Florida. But, um, you know, we all thought about, well, what could have been? Wow. You know, she surely could. If she had not retired, she would have surely been um, in, uh, in Tower 2. Wow. Absolutely. And uh, so my dear mom... Um, she raised all of us, and her and my dad broke up uh, when I was about four. And um, uh, she raised all of us, and all of us went to, was, got college educated and, you know, did well. Uh, we grew up in the East New York section of Brooklyn. Okay, to give you an idea of that, it, that, that area was right next door to Brownsville, where my Tyson grew up. Uh, I moved from there, uh, I would say, in 1975, uh, into the Red Hook housing development, mm -hmm. uh, which was a really, really, really interesting uh, development. Um, sat right on the water uh, uh, in Brooklyn. Uh, and now, uh, back then, Red Hook was a pretty rough place to grow up in. Now, with gentrification, Barclays Center, 
uh, Red Hook, Brooklyn is one of the most sought after areas in Brooklyn uh, because it is downtown, very close to downtown, walking distance to downtown, which means that it's walking distance to the Brooklyn Bridge, the Manhattan Bridge, which means it's walking distance to a ton of commerce. Um, they recently in Red Hook, uh, oh, eight years ago, built a Royal Caribbean cruise terminal. So now people are cruising from out of Red Hook to all over destinations all over the world and um, all types of new commerce have uh, come into Red Hook, Ikea, uh, Fairways, uh, which is a New York style um, Whole Foods, sits right on the water. They have a ferry that comes right up to the back of Fairways uh, that will take you to Manhattan, that will take you to the Statue of Liberty, which are relatively new developments. And, uh, but, but it's really, really good to see. So growing up in Red Hook was, um, I went to John Jay High School, which is right there in Park Slope. You know, it was, uh, you know, it was uh, a really, really, really good and enlightening uh, time for me because I had my march notice, go to school, get excellent grades, uh, and get a scholarship or partial scholarship and keep moving, you know. Uh, as my dear mother would always say, uh, we live in Red Hook, but Red Hook doesn't live in us. Okay. And so uh, both my parents uh, died roughly about three and a half, four years ago in the same year. And, uh, you know, but, you know, the job is done. You know, they got a chance to see their children, their children's children. And uh, I can uh, definitely say for both my parents that they did leave an inheritance for their children and their children's children as we were taught to do. Okay. Just, I'm always curious. You, you, you come from Red Hook, Brooklyn. You grew up, I guess, in the 70s and 80s. How did you not get involved in the truck trade? Because it, it was there. It was, it was out your front door. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Well, I knew that that wasn't my future. You know, uh, once again, my parents taught us that, uh, you know, that's a, that's a short trip nowhere. You got, you got two options in adult business, jail or dead. Neither appealed to me. Okay. So, uh, so, so you... Neither appealed to me. So, you, so, uh, so I know you had some friends that didn't make it. Yeah, a lot of my, most of my friends didn't make it, you know, and, uh, you know, shortly... During high school and after high school, you know, we kind of all went different directions, you know, because uh, I was very, very focused uh, and uh, very, very determined on what my path was. And um, the few friends that I do have left when that we talk, you know, you know, they kind of reminded me that, you know, I, that I was extremely focused. You know, you you wonder how, you know, sometimes how people see you. And they said that, hey, I had a high school, all through high school, I had a job sports, got great grades, okay, and I didn't follow the crowd. Yeah, can you, uh, can you tell me about your father? He, he didn't graduate, graduate, he didn't, what grade did he get to? He dropped down to 10th grade. 10th grade, but he ended up with 10 produce stores? Um, yeah, wound up actually with, with more than that. Um, my father was a phenomenal, excellent businessman, taught by his father. Okay. And, um, you know, produce really was the family business 
Sanford, Florida, and my father found out that uh, uh, there was a demand. There was a demand. See, back in that time, uh, people, you know, were uh, the, the food selection of food was a lot better in the black community. You had vegetables, you know, you had the butcher shop. Everything specialized. Right. Okay, where well you can go and get your fresh meat, fresh cut, fresh sticks, fresh chicken, you know, uh, fresh turkey parts at the butcher shop. And, you know, and uh, uh, what my father did at first was, because uh, he happened to point to start his own store, he partnered with the local butcher shops so that people can get their fresh vegetables at the same time that they got their fresh meat. You know, their greens, their hams, their beans, their cabbages, their, you know, their produce, their apples, oranges, and, of course, if it was summertime, you always have your uh, great summertime produce, your cherries, your mangoes, your cantaloupes, your watermelons, and, uh, and so uh, he uh, started out that way, and then he graduated, did his own first, you know, little store, and then had one store built, another store, um, you know, from the late 50s on. Throughout all this, kept going through the early 70s, uh, up until the, what we call the Asian invasion into the inner cities. And um, they would come and they would sit outside my father's stores and they would uh, watch the flow of business and for about 30, 45 days. And then they'd come in and they said, uh, Oh, Mr. Hardy introduced himself and there was a big shopping bag. We want to buy this store, we want to buy. This and they shop bags for the cash. And this is for you. you know? and they would sit down and talk about you know whether my father owned the building or leased the building, things of that nature. Uh, but my father would always tell them that whatever amount of money they had in the bag wasn't enough. They would go back and get some more. You know? And uh, inevitably, that's exactly what they would do. And, uh, and so I would say mid-70s, what he started doing is uh, he started selling off some of those stores, some of the um, By that time, they had about 20, 22, and uh, he sold off about half of them uh, and kept the other, you know, 12 to 15, and, uh, you know, and, and then and kept moving. Uh, my father then had the ingenious idea uh, to um, specialize uh, during the Christmas holidays. Uh, you know, he would get a couple of thousand Christmas trees in different locations. The, uh, the major location that he had was on uh, Empire Boulevard uh, at Bedford Avenue in Brooklyn. And for people that know Brooklyn and know New York, you know that that's right uh, there at Prospect Park and right down the block from Ebbets Field Apartments, which is where the famed Ebbets Field baseball field used to be. And the Brooklyn Dodgers played baseball in Brooklyn. Of course, once the Dodgers moved to L.A., they uh, tore down Evans Field, and they uh, they built uh, uh, an apartment complex there. And across the street at Empire in Bedford uh, is where uh, you know, my father's main location was uh, for Christmas trees. And that was really only a 45-day period. The day after Thanksgiving, until Christmas Eve, okay, um, we would sell anywhere from uh, five to 10,000 Christmas trees in that, in that time period. The Daily News 
business and how long he's been there and you know, how many trees he sells and the fact that it's a family business. And, and so, you know, uh, I learned the truth for everything I know about business from my dad. He was a, a phenomenal, uh, phenomenal businessman. And uh, he taught my brothers and I everything that we know and many other family members about business. Okay. Well, you know, when we first met and we moved out here, and I used to be, you know, I used to hit that door at 7 o'clock in the morning off the work, and I see you, and you you know, you probably had on some sweats. And we first, we, you know, we played basketball when we first moved out here. I'm like, dude, does a guy ever go to work? Man, like, <laughs> so, you went to college, you had a job for a while, and you became self-employed. Talk about that. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Um, being an entrepreneur um, runs deep, uh, very, very deep in my, my family bloodline. Uh, I went to State University of New York up, up in Albany um, and uh, graduated, got my degree in business economics. And um, I got a job with the famed Eastman Kodak Company based out of Rochester, New York. And uh, my uncle was there for like, he retired 35 years of service, and at that time, uh, Kodak was a very, very uh, company that believed in nepotism. Um, they always hired from within. And um, at the time, when I uh, interviewed with Kodak, I was, I was living in Columbus, Ohio. And um, my uh, uncle uh, called me up and, uh, and I said, sure. Flew me up to Washington, D.C., to Arlington, and uh, I went through a series of four or five interviews during that day, and they offered me a job on the spot, and um, went back home, uh, got situated, uh, and, uh, you know, they moved um, from Columbus. Uh, my uh, headquarters would be at BWI. Service uh, Baltimore, Baltimore County, uh, you know, Baltimore City, the federal government, uh, uh, state, local government, uh, and, and around Baltimore. And um, so I uh, worked with Kodak for 10 years. I went to the school. Um, but I, I realized that, you know, that corporate, stuffy environment really, really wasn't what I wanted to do. unbeknownst to me that hated me when I walked through the door because my uncle was a big shot with Kodak and you know and they know the way um, he you know matter of fact he worked in HR but as I said you know I had a, a, a mark on my back from people I didn't even know that I was supposed to be working with and so they made it extremely difficult um, and so what I did was I started selling insurance part-time. Now, well, let me, let me, let me regress. You know, the, the job at Kodak was, it was great for a job. So it was, it was a, a, a life.
lifelong job. If you got a job with Kodak, you will work there for life. And because of the, the strong benefits, uh, new company card for fifty thousand, uh, gold card, American Express for my expenses, and uh, nobody asked a whole lot of questions as long as you produced. I worked in the copy products division, uh, which is um, the division that made high volume copiers for uh, uh, accounting firms, uh, federal government agencies. Uh, these copiers actually started at $99,000. Okay, uh, and so it was serious business because during that time, there were two companies in the uh, high volume copying uh, end of the business as we call it. It was Kodak and Xerox. Nobody else was able to maneuver in that end of the market. So when we went in to see a customer that they were with us, we were with Xerox. Bam. Remember I told you that our box started at 99000 Right. Xerox had the same exact copter. Did the same things. Two-sided copy and color. They're sold for $65,000. So the average individual would say, well, why would somebody spend 99000 on something that they could get for 60000 Well, that was all the Kodak plan. When you got hired at the Kodak company, they sent you away up to Rochester on their, their, on their campus, which was the size of four football fields, for three months, away from your family, your wife, your children, if you wanted to fly home on a weekend for a weekend visit, no problem. But they sequestered you away for three months, and what they did was they totally brainwashed you. They brought in psychologists, psychiatrists, you learned body language, you learned verbal, So, you know, 
once you get through with that and people understand that you understand how to handle yourself, you know, without fighting and cussing them out and all that other stuff, then they, they, they understood to leave you alone. You know? And so I said to myself, I said, do I want to spend the next, you know, 10, 15 years? Don't get me wrong, I'm making a great living, but how much money could I make if I dedicated between 40 and 60 hours a week to my own business? What would happen? I got to remember, I come from a entrepreneurial family. So once I started making more money consistently, doubling and tripling the money I made with Kodak, part-time and on the weekends, I'm talking to my wife. So this is what I want to do. You know, this is what we got in the bank. You know, uh, I think I can be a lot more productive elsewhere. Okay. And uh, God our blessings. And that, that was the end of the story. Okay. You know, I never looked back. Um, I had to go back into corporate America a couple of times uh, during market crashes like 2008, things of that nature. Uh, but after that, uh, I, I worked as hard for Cash Management Group, uh, which is the corporation I started, as I did for some Kodak Company. And we do rewards. Now, Larry was absolutely right. Uh, I have an outside office, but I do most of my work from home. Okay, my day starts at 9 a.m., just as if I had to show up at the office. Sometimes it doesn't finish till 9, 10 o'clock at night. Okay, so, uh, you know, you got to put the time in in order to reap the rewards. All right, you have to uh, go at it as hard, if not harder, than if you're working for someone else. And so, you know, that's the... You know, that, that's been the name of the, name of the game. That's, that's my story. If I can work 40 to 50 hours for Kodak, why can't I do it for Dupont? Okay. Uh, let's get a little closer to what we are here to talk about today. Are black men a problem to the black community and to black women? So let's talk about marriage. Uh, how long have you been married? 23 years. 23 years. Okay. So uh, tell me something. What does it take to stay married? Well, first of all, um, black men have to understand their rightful position in the home. We have to lead, okay, because everybody is following our lead. So, okay, if you are a black man in a home, you got a family, a wife, and children, and you're a dope fiend, and you're an alcoholic, or you're a gambling addict, you know, or you're a whoremonger, then something's going to be lacking in your home. Something's going to be lacking, okay? But if you decide that you want to be a man of God, and you follow the principles that God has set forth for the head of the household, okay, and they're not easy, but you will find that your wife will fall in line, Children will fall in line, okay, because you're in line, okay? But if you're crooked, alrighty, then your wife's going to be crooked and your children will be crooked. Okay, it's, it's a real, real simple, it's a decision that a black man has to make to protect what he loves. Now, if he loves dope, 
that's what he's going to protect. That's what he's going to invest in. You know, when I built this house, you know, uh, my oldest brother, who has passed away now, asked me, he said, man, how, you know, how can you afford this? I said, I don't have any bad habits. Okay? So the money that I make goes to supporting my family. And being a business scholar, what I learned is, is that Uncle Sam, the IRS, wants you to own a house and will pay you to own your house. So if you own a house, okay, and you're paying a mortgage, guess what? At around tax time, 90% of that money is tax deductible. So... What people that don't look like us have known for years, and we're just catching on to it, is that really you can actually live for free. You got to make the payment, okay? But it reduces, particularly if you're an entrepreneur, it reduces um, your, uh, your 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 total tax amount at the end of the year. So because you- the last uh, uh, the last um. Dang on uh, uh, tax break that we have is interest on your primary home. We used to get a tax break on interest on credit cards and all that other stuff, but uh, Reagan cut that out. So now the only real tax deduction that, let's say, if you're a W-2 employee that you have is your home. Okay? And so um, you make it work for you. Question, Mr. G. Yes, sir. Uh, does an LLC help you reduce your taxes? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, uh, I hate to use this person as an example, but we just all just saw when uh, Trump had to release his taxes on several hundred millions of dollars. He wound up paying $750 in taxes to the feds. And one year when he bankrupted Atlantic City, he actually got a refund of $72 million. Okay, he couldn't have done that. He, he could not have done that if, if he was, a, uh, you know, uh, working at somebody else's job, working to profit somebody else. This country was built on business, small and medium-sized business. The laws have been written to favor businesses, period. So, uh, tell me about your children. First of all, I love your son, man. That dude has that Brooklyn swag. The dude is smooth. <laughs> He's just smooth. I, my, 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 I got great children. I got, I got, I got great children. Uh, we'll start with my son first. He's the youngest, Daryl, 28 years old. Graduated from University of Buffalo, degree in economics. Um, very sharp, very intelligent. Um, he has not figured out uh, uh, that he hasn't figured out yet his full potential. He's still working there. I think that once he, he gets into contact with that, I think he's going to be he's dangerous now, but it's going to be real dangerous. Real dangerous. I, I love your son. He has such a his personality is just out of this world. Yeah. Beautiful personality. Beautiful, yes, beautiful sir. human being. He does, you know, and and uh, my daughter Erica is 
graduated from New York Technical School with a degree in fashion merchandising. She works, her and her husband, uh, work for the Gap in management. He's a regional manager uh, in human resources, and she's a manager uh, in the, the largest uh, flagship store is called in Times Square and whatnot. And so she just had her second baby. Bryson, actually, it's Bryson Grant. All right, Bryson yeah. with his, uh, but that's Tim with my middle name. And um, and we have a two-and-a-half-year-old uh, granddaughter, uh, Tori. And Tori actually spent the month of November with us uh, just recently here. And uh, my wife and I realized that uh, we don't have the energy <laughs> from behind the two-and-a-half-year-old. She wore us out, and we had a great time. get to this question, Mr. G. Yes, sir. Are black men the, a, a problem to the black community and black women? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. The black man <clears throat> is an endangered species because the rest of the population is extremely afraid of what he can do and what he can accomplish if he is focused. Okay, because you got to understand, the black man traditionally has done more with less. When I told you that my uh, grandfather, my grandparents, my mother's side, they had Same two people raised 12 of them in a two-bedroom house. Sample for the house is still standing. Family still lives in the house. They renovated it. Okay. But they made it work. Okay, they, they did more with less. And my grandfather told all of his children, you will finish school, you will finish high school, you will not drop out and go to work. That is not even an option. Okay. Not even an option. So, if the, the black man that we're talking about, because there's three or four different, as you and I know, different black men. If the black man that we're talking about is the black man that wants to be a positive influence on his household, wants to be a positive influence for his wife, wants to be a positive influence for his children. Okay. Now, if we're talking about that black man,
whether he's in the house or outside the house. Because we know that that is a, a major issue in our community. Okay? And if they happen to decide they want to go their own ways, that man has to stay steadfast. He has to make sure that he supports his obligation. He has to make sure that he spends time, quality time, with his obligation. I have examples, as you know, I mentor young men uh, in Washington, D.C., and you know, I have done that for the last 30 years. I have examples of men that live in the house, and, you know, and it, 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 everything is, is, is going to hell in the handbasket. I have men that live outside the house, and they make sure, you know, that they spend quality time, they make sure that their children's needs are taken care of. And, uh, and, and, you know, and everybody's as happy as they possibly could be. And uh, so it all depends on how that man was raised. Okay, so do you think faith has a lot to do on a man, a, mind, a black man's mindset? has everything to do with it because every man comes to what my parents call the fork in the road. You're either going to go left to destruction or you're going to go right to prosperity. Okay? And if you fall victim to uh, wanting to follow the crowd, you're going to go left. You know, get involved in drugs and alcohol and stop your education. And, you know, uh, don't put yourself in a position where you can command the type of dollars that you need to command to be able to take care of your family.
the people that raised us, you know, help uh, uh, build for us, right? You know, if some of us went left for a minute, we realize, hey, this, this ain't no fun. You know, uh, you know. Uh, see, a black man can't get locked up and talk about he want organic food. <laughs> <laughs>
reason why the black vote carried, the black and the brown vote carried the election. Okay, and so there has been a plan put in place 50, 60 years ago so that we wouldn't see what we just saw. Okay, and so back in the 60s and 70s, what they did was they gave the black woman uh, finances, but the only way she can get those finances is by kicking the black man out of the house. All right. Okay, so you destroy the family, okay, the nucleus, okay, you take out the head, which is the, which is the man, and the body's going to fall. All right, Mr. No, so, oh yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, go ahead. You have something else you want to say? Yes, I do. So what happened was that when they introduced the finances, what happened was between the black man and black woman is that there was confusion because of the infusion of the little few measly dollars that, you know, the government inserted into the family as to who was the head of the household. It ain't got nothing to do with money. It ain't got nothing to do. You read the Bible. The Bible will say the person with the most money is the head of the household. The Bible said the man. But he's got to act like the head of the household. Okay, and that's what happened. The finances got mixed up. The woman then said, look, I don't need you. I, I'm getting a check and I'm working. And, you know, and, and if you don't want to bring anything to the household... And, you know, you're, you're just, you know, we don't need that. Okay, so what happened is, is that you have some men, not all, they turn to drugs and alcohol, this, that, and the other, instead of being positive and saying, you know what, she's right, let me be an asset to this household. Okay, you turn to drugs and alcohol, everything goes to hand, hand in hand, and, you know, goes goes out the window. So that that's what the last point that I'm going to share there. Okay, well... Mr. G, I think you gave us something to ponder on. So, uh, any last words? Um, yes. Uh, not all black men, but uh, a strong percentage have failed their sons, failed their children. Okay. It doesn't matter about the finances. It doesn't matter about the child support, whether you pay it or not. Do not abandon your children. Okay. I've been monitoring young men in Washington, D.C. area for 30 years, church-based mentoring, uh, proactive mentoring, getting to them before the penal system gets to them. And the biggest issue that I've dealt with is where is daddy? Okay, so hopefully us black men can uh, uh, retain our rightful place of leadership with our family and with our children, and particularly. Okay. So that, that was my closing statement. All right. Well, thank you, Mr. G, for your time. And as always, how you doing? Still there, Larry? Yeah, I'm still here. Can you hear me? Oh, can you hear me? Oh, yes, I can. Okay. Yes, I can. So uh, I just want to remind everybody uh, 
How you think determines what you do and what you do determines what you have. Cost you nothing to be smart. Dare to dream, dream big because, you know, I really believe in black men and black women. But in order to learn anything, the first thing you must do is listen. So hopefully you take time to listen to this podcast and uh, have a great day. Uh, talk to you tomorrow, Mr. G. Talk to you tomorrow, sir. All right. Good night. Now. Good, good night.